Hello, I'm Michael Crawford Zimri, and this is Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic. This podcast brings you conversations with women environmental leaders who have been working in their communities, creating innovative and sustainable solutions that address climate change and environmental inequities. I got tired of listening to mainstream media's take on climate change with doom and gloom scenarios that make you feel overwhelmed and anxious about the future. Do we really need to be planning on Mars as our next home? Let's not give up on this world. There is a place for all of us to make a difference. In today's episode entitled Women and Land, I will be talking with Kahia Pacheco, a mixed indigenous woman who is an environmental leader and one of the co-directors of the Women's Earth Alliance. We will be discussing her work with women in indigenous communities, what environmental violence is, and how violence to the land especially affects women and children in a community. We will also talk about what is happening at the Women's Earth Alliance in 2021, especially in supporting women leaders and why women are particularly well-positioned to address the issues of climate change. Kahia is currently one of the co-directors of the Women's Earth Alliance, a global organization that trains and strategizes with women leaders who are working on grassroots environmental projects to strengthen and scale them for more effective solutions. Kahia trained as an attorney and has worked on human rights, federal Indian law. As a law clerk, she worked on cases to ensure tribal rights under the Native Protection and Repatriation Act, Indian Child Welfare, Environmental Projects, and the Klamath River Settlement. In addition to being a co-creator, she is a creative communications and operations specialist, and she is just returning from maternity leave. Welcome, Kahia. Thank you for having me, Michael. (laughs) This is fun. So, Kahia, I know you were born and raised on the big island of Hawaii. Can you share with us your heritage and your experiences growing up that helped shape your identity as Kanaaka Maoli? Absolutely. Well, I'm a mixed Indigenous woman, Kanaka Maoli. I'm also a woman of Portuguese, Filipino, Spanish descent. That's a result of the plantation system in Hawaii, the sugar plantation system that kind of grew prior to and definitely after the annexation of the Hawaiian kingdom, the illegal annexation of the Hawaiian kingdom, I should say. I grew up quite rural. The Big Island is is one of the more rural islands. Um, the community I'm from has about 500 people. And so just a lot of open spaces, a lot of time on the land. My dad fished a lot and did throw netting a lot as a kid and and he would take me with him. I'd spent a lot of summers kind of running barefoot, finding waterfalls to jump off of with my cousins. So just always pretty close to the land. I I loved going camping and and being down at the the water and being up on the slopes of Mauna Kea, one of my favorite places to be. And then I actually attended Kamehameha Schools, which is a private 
school and philanthropic trust for Native Hawaiian students. So you have to be Native Hawaiian in order to attend. And they have a focus on, they would say, industrious men and women, investing in industrious Hawaiian men and women because they're a private school. They wove together culture and academics and um, really afforded me an opportunity to grow and to expand into my education and to it opened a door for me to experience a lot of things that not a lot of Hawaiian Native Hawaiian kids in Hawaii in rural Hawaii especially get to experience. That is so wonderful very interesting because I know most of people think of Hawaii as a vacation destination and you had a wonderful opportunity to grow up on the land and have a completely different relationship with the water, the land, the sky. I know the sky is very important in Hawaii as well. <laughs> so were there any big aha moments or points of inspiration or did your did your passion just grow kind of organically from the way you grew up? I think my passion for the land grew organically from the way I grew up, but my passion for justice is really something I woke up to. And it, that's in part Kamehameha Schools, you know, it, it, shows you, it reminds you how lucky you are to attend there because you are also come to recognize that Native Hawaiians are, they have the highest rate of high school dropout, the highest rate of teen pregnancy, the highest rate of incarceration, the highest rate of, of early death of, of, they're just at the bottom of a lot of socioeconomic indicators in Hawaii. And that was the purpose of the school. So having that kind of brought to consciousness during high school. And then in college, once I started studying human rights, I studied human rights in Northern Ireland. And then I went to Aotearoa, New Zealand, and was studying human rights in the context of colonization and decolonization in the Pacific. And that's when it really kind of clicked for me that I was like, you know, there's something, there's something in my community, some aspects, some, some things I see in my community that I should get involved in. I should be working to support my my community. So it was kind of a, a meeting of all of those things. What were is there any particular issue that stood out with you when you were talking about going back and created relating to your community? Or was this combination of all of the you know, experiences? It was a combination. It was a lot about the land, about like land ownership. For better or worse, and there is a lot of debate so I'm not here to pick sides or anything, but, you know, the military presence in Hawaii can be problematic. Um, big ag's presence in Hawaii and their use of the land. So both, you know, the military industrial complex, like big ag, their use of the land when Native Hawaiians have so little access to land, like it's so difficult for Hawaiians to access land, to purchase land. The positioning of Hawaii as this, like you said, a tourist destination. And, you know, and that's even, that's that's so, so present right now in the pandemic. I was just home in Hawaii this past weekend, actually. And I was talking to a lot of family and we were just talking about how Right now with the pandemic, now that a lot of people can work remotely and because Hawaii has much fewer cases of COVID-19 than a lot of other places in the United States, people are moving there in mass and buying up, buying up so much land and putting their huge houses there. And you still have the Native Hawaiian community that's 
that's struggling to be able to own land, like own the land that they have ancestral ties to, you know? So it's kind of all of those things. Yeah. That's really kind of painful to hear all that story. When you graduated from law school, you focused on human rights and the federal Indian law. And you created some workshops and a toolkit called the North American Advocacy Network. And you had you made partnerships with Indigenous women. Could you tell us a little bit about that project and what kind of the the working with Indigenous women, what were some of the issues and what were some of your accomplishments that you were really happy about? Mm-hmm. During law school, I clerked for a little while with a firm that represented tribes exclusively. So I got, that's where I started working on a lot of the Native American graves repatriation and the Indian Child Welfare Act. But I decided not to practice law and I was, and that's when I found Women's Earth Alliance. And I, they had, a, we had a program at the time called the North America Advocacy Network. And that network facilitated collaborations, pro bono collaborations between indigenous frontline grassroots leaders, women leaders here in the continental United States and attorneys, business uh, leaders who would donate their time and their skill and their expertise to facilitate these projects, to offer whatever support they could to the indigenous women. So I facilitated those collaborations for a little while and from there, once that program sunset, that's when I started to, and, and I had always kind of had my my ear to the ground on this because, so in law school, I, I published a paper on kind of the sexual assaults that were happening in Indian country that, that had been happening since contact really in Indian country. And so the safety of Native American women had always been on my, had been something I'd focused on in law school and had looked into and was always something I was, I was paying attention to. So at that point, once the advocacy network kind of sunset, that's when I started hearing like, you know, there's an increase in this violence. There's, there's a spike in this violence because extractive industries are now in indigenous territories. And that was, you know, the oil booms around like, 2008, 2009 in places like North Dakota. Now we were starting to see the numbers coming from there and people were starting to track the crimes. And so that's when we, you know, we did, we reached out to a number of colleagues who would have also had their finger on the pulse of, of the issue. And we got connected to the Native Youth Sexual Health Network and Nishin. They are an organization by and for Indigenous young people that works across issues of sexual reproductive health rights and justice in the United States and Canada. And they have been doing this kind of work for years. So we partnered together and realized that, you know, what's missing is a lot of documented information about what's happening to these women and young people, actually, and two-spirit people what's happening as a result of of industry being in their territory. So there needs to be documentation. And as that project went forward, we also realized that documentation was good for the policy side of things, for international like bodies and everything as, as, as evidence, as anecdotal evidence. But what about what Indigenous communities needed immediately? Like, you know, they were still experiencing violence. How, what was there going to be available for immediate harm reduction? So that's when we also created a toolkit that included teaching information to talk to communities about environmental violence, medicines, recipes for medicines that could be kind of changed to be more 
nation specific to the territory you're in and the medicine that is available, you know, on the land in your territory, um, as well as an environmental violence assessment so that you could look at what's happening in your community, put it kind of into this framework and use that as a discussion point. That was one of my most rewarding bodies of work and partnerships. I, Nishin are truly, I learned so much from their leadership and how they approach the work and being unafraid to speak truth to power from them. Could you kind of dive a little bit more deeply into that? Like maybe some people don't exactly know what environmental violence really is and then how working with Indigenous women, the leaders there, what were some of the examples of things that they did to address that? Mm-hmm. So environmental violence, it's it's a term that was coined by, you know, a lot of just the dedicated work of Indigenous-led organizations like the Indian, the International Indian Treaty Council. They're the first who started using this term environmental violence to name the impacts a lot of times the reproductive health impacts of industry on indigenous land. So that could be miscarriage, birth deformity, um, infertility. And then it started to be expanded as, as the impact grew. Is that from like polluted water and air and those kinds of things? Those kinds of things from extractive industry, like say if you have fracking, how it fractures the ground and all of a sudden that gas gets into your water. And all of a sudden, your water is poisoned. And you're a pregnant mother and you... Exactly. Yep. So that's really a lot of the reproductive health impacts. But then there's also, you know, cancers. Um, and that can be a, like uranium mining, you know, and the uranium exposure from from just the leftovers from the mines that are used to build homes, you know, you, decades later. And all of a sudden, people realize that those homes were radioactive, and now you have a lot of cancers in the community. And then there's chronic social stressors, which is another impact, which is another form of environmental violence. And chronic social stressors are those things like missing and murdered Indigenous women, sexual assault, um, sexual violence, drug addiction. So all of those kind of things that, uh, you know, like impacts, you can have impacts on your, on your family, the generational trauma it causes. You can have impacts on your community. If there's an increase in crime in your community, those are kind of the different forms of environmental violence. And it is still an emerging term that is not super common in like public media, mainstream media, that kind of thing. So, so thank you for asking and clarifying that. And was there any success story that stands out for you or something that kind of was inspiring of of the work that you did with these women? I mean, it was all really inspiring. I don't know if there's a quote unquote success story because you're taking on industry, you know, like you're now like. So maybe it's more about the relationships that in the with between the women that maybe there's maybe there's something there in that that's rather than. Yeah, I think one of the things that was, if I would say like, this was a really amazing thing that came out of this. I mean, if I had to pick one, because there are a lot of amazing things, it was that the report continues to be used. Like it featured the leadership of a lot of land and body defense, like indigenous young women and and two spirits who are doing that kind of, of work. And people continue to reach out to ask for the report and the toolkit. It is free and very publicly available, 
but you know, we do speaking engagements at universities to talk about it so that we can educate like not just our own communities, but other communities who, you know, geography classes who would find this things these useful later on in their careers. The midwifery tent at Standing Rock had copies of the toolkit which we thought was just incredibly lovely. We also did community action grants as part of this, which are extremely low barrier grants for people who are doing any kind of land defense work, land body defense work in their communities. So all of those were extremely rewarding for us, I think. And and just getting to focus on the stories of the indigenous people in the communities, those most impacted and getting to put their stories somewhere, you know, so that people don't, It's never forgotten that this kind of stuff happens. We will be right back to talk about the Women's Earth Alliance. Welcome back to Environmental Voices Rising. We're talking with Cahia Pacheco, one of the co-directors of the Women's Earth Alliance. Kahia and I have had more than a few conversations about supporting women's leadership, and I would like to catch up on what the Women's Earth Alliance plans are for 2021. So my next question for you, Kahia, is how is WIA moving ahead and building on their years of success? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such a wide breadth of projects. There's a young woman who runs the Mycelium Network, which is here in Oakland and works with Oakland schools to do kind of climate, to incorporate like a climate lens and to focus on on, on a climate aspect to their work. There is another leader who, she helps to grow food, like organic gardening projects and everything in her community, which is otherwise a food desert. It's a Black community. So there's a lot of issues that Black communities face because of systemic racism and systemic oppression. And and so you have amazing Black leaders, women leaders who are in those communities ensuring that their communities get what they need. And in this case, it's healthy food. In our first cohort in 2019, we had two Native Hawaiian women who were also living up on the mountain, Mauna Kea, during the they were some of the kia'i that were protecting sacred Mauna Kea from development. I mean, there are so many. And on our website, you can literally find bios and learn more about each and every woman. And each and every woman, they're just so inspiring. When we have phone calls with them, you leave that phone call and you're just kind of jittery with just like, this, this is, we're going to be okay. It gives you hope, you know? That was going to be one of my big questions, really. I love because that's, I mean, environmental issues can be really complex and daunting, and they can quickly lead a lot of people to overwhelm. And so this podcast, Environmental Voices Rising, is consciously taking a solutions-oriented approach to offer inspiration and vision beyond the, the gloom and doom scenarios that predominate mainstream media. So I was actually going to ask you what was uplifting, but I think you actually gave us a lot of inspirational stories. But any, you know, any other, like, what's it like to collaborate with the Sierra Club? So we collaborate with their gender equity program, and they are wonderful. They really are wonderful partners who are just very much in it to support these women and support their leadership and 
get their solutions out there to fortify these solutions because these solutions, I mean, we understand it and Sierra Club, their program team understands these are the solutions that are going to make an impact on the ground and everyday lives because these women are from the communities that they're bringing their solutions to. And if we can just get those solutions to grow, like we can't even imagine the wonderful impact it's going to have, the huge impact it's going to have. And I think Sierra Club, their team, they really understand that vision. So it's been a really wonderful partnership for us. That's amazing and wonderful. I just am so inspired by that as well. Can you just say that again? Because this underscores again why women are really well positioned to address these climate change. They are in the communities. So you want to expand on that one some more? Yeah. So, I mean, it's part of we as core understanding and recognition behind and the philosophy behind our work. You know, grassroots women are often those who are tasked with either kind of tasked through everyday life or tasked ancestrally just through our understanding of the cosmos and the world to care for our communities, to provide food, to provide water, to to watch the children. And when climate change, when environmental degradation disrupts those systems, women are usually the first to see that because we are those most closely positioned to those resources. And so women often have to think through these things on deeper levels. Like I really do have to provide for my community, what is the best way of doing that, you know? And so we believe that just by uplifting and and standing alongside them, I don't want to necessarily use the word uplift. So standing alongside these women leaders who are already doing the work, who already know what they need, and they just want some partnership. They just want some support, some allies, some accomplices. That's what we're here to do because we know that those solutions will be the most effective because they're already tried and true in communities. I like that. I thank you. Thank you for shifting the word from uplift to alliance. I think an alliance is a very, it's a very good word we could use. Can you share any stories or or the women who've inspired you? So many. It's so funny because as we were talking, I was also like continuing to think of women from the accelerator that I was like, oh, her and her. Like there are just so many. We don't have a lack of inspiring women in the world, which is just the best problem you could ever have. Some of the women who personally inspire me, not just in Wea's work, but like in my life is Noi Noi Wong Wilson. She's a Kia'i, she's a Kupuna in Hawaii. She also happens to be one of my closest friend's mothers, but she is one of the elders that, the 38 elders that camped up at Mauna Kea to block the access road so that construction couldn't go up to the sacred mountain and begin development and begin digging and destroying that sacred space. They they stayed up there for more than 90 days, you know, just sleeping in tents, refusing to move from the road, doing it so peacefully and with so much love, getting arrested and their charges are still pending, you know. Um, so she's one of the people that deeply inspires me just in my life, as well as the other leaders from the Mauna Kea movement, like Pua Case, local leaders here in the Bay Area, like Karina Gold, and then one of my local leaders here in the Bay Area as well, Kawi Peralto, who for me, whenever you're around her, it feels like you're at home in Hawaii, but also like she she just leads here. She brings Hawaii wherever she is 
and the the spirit of what it means to be an indigenous relative and a good relative wherever she is. And so it's something that I learned is very possible feeling so far away from home that you can still be Hawaiian. You're still indigenous, even though you're outside of your lands. So that's been really inspiring. And I could go on forever, but I will kind of just wrap up by saying, you know, oftentimes a lot of the, the quote unquote environmental leaders wouldn't necessarily identify themselves as environmental leaders. They're just doing whatever they're called to do. So like I have friends in Hawaii who have jobs, you know, other jobs doing other things, but they also went up to the Mauna and they stood on the Mauna and protected it. And to me, those people are leaders as well. They're environmental leaders and they inspire me too. So, so yeah, I'll just say that. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, we're going to wrap up here. Can you like, where can people go to like learn more? What would you, aside from the Women's Earth Alliance, which is wea.org. It's womensearthalliance.org. womensearthalliance.org. Are there any other resources where people might want that you might want to share about where people can go and learn? Yeah, absolutely. You can find us on all the usual suspects over social media, like Facebook at Women's Earth Alliance, Instagram, Women's Earth Alliance, Twitter, Women's Earth Ally. On Instagram, we, you know, we have a regular drumbeat and we share a lot, including a lot of education, um, a lot of just the real-time updates from our work and the women we work with um, and all of our programs. So, yeah. Well, Kahia, thank you so much. It's been a wonderful conversation and I look forward to having a, a further one. Thank you so much for having me and inviting me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Environmental Voices Rising, Women at the Mic. You can subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at eVoicesRising. There is more information on the website, environmentalvoicesrising.com. If you have felt left out of the climate change conversation, not sure what all those environmental sustainability vocabulary words really mean, send us an email with your questions and we will help you get started understanding what is going on. We are happy to share our stories with you and remind you that, yes, you can make a difference.